Christianity is a life of painful joy. The Old Testament commands you, delight yourself in the Lord. The Old Testament commands you, serve the Lord with gladness. The Old Testament commands you, in all your undertakings, rejoice before the Lord. Psalm 37, Psalm 100, Deuteronomy 12. Jesus commands, rejoice and leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. He said, all my teachings I speak to you in order that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. The Apostle Paul commands, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. He said, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. He said, my work as an apostle is to be a worker with you for your joy. He said to the Philippians, I know that I will remain with you for the advancement and joy of your faith. He said, God loves a cheerful giver. And on and on and on, the theme of the Bible is that Christianity is a life of tremendous joy. Peter, verse 6, picks up this theme now. He picks up this theme of great joy, and he gives two reasons for why we as a people are people who rejoice. And in the process, he shows us why it's painful joy. Let me mention the first reason in passing, because we've spent two weeks on it already, and then focus in on the second reason. The first reason is in verses 3 to 5, because at the beginning of verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice. And the this, the word this, refers backwards to verse 3. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. In this you rejoice. And verse 4, he is guarding or keeping an inheritance for us out there that's unfading and imperishable and undefiled. It's kept. It will not rot or rust. It's out there. It's going to be there when we get there. And so in that we rejoice, and verse 5, he's keeping us for it, it for us and us for it. And in that we rejoice that God is at work on us so that we don't make shipwreck of faith and fail to get the inheritance. So we've been born again, there's an inheritance kept, we are being kept, and verse 6 says, in this we rejoice. And that's enough. That's not all. He not only says that when you walk into the distresses and the trials of your life, look beyond them to the inheritance, which is fixed and protected, and be confident that they'll be there, this inheritance will be there when you get there. Don't just think that way. That's great. I think that way a lot. When I hit hard times, I remember praying with David Yeager day before yesterday, before Faith got back from the doctors where she had two cracked ribs because she had coughed so hard that week. And we were sitting there looking out over Long Lake and it was beautiful. And leaves were on the ground like a golden carpet. And it was magnificent. And uh, they were, he was going to leave it all. And I found myself praying, Lord, open David's eyes to the inheritance, which is about two seconds away. And how undefiled and how unfading and how imperishable and how everlasting it is and how brief by comparison this world is and how inadequate all these luxuries are that he is surrounded by here just before he leaves them. Keep his eyes open. That's good to think that way. 
But it's not the only ground for joy. The other one is this. There is a design of God in our distresses. So, not only do we hit distress and trial and suffering and pain and frustration and disappointment and say, all right, I'll get through this by looking over it and beyond it to the reward and the inheritance and the salvation that's coming at the revelation of Jesus. But second, I will look in it and through it because in here, in here, by virtue of God's sovereignty, there's a design for my life that's really good. That's what this text is about. Verses six and seven. Where do I get the idea that there's a design here from God? I get it in verse 6 from the word or the phrase, if necessary. You see that phrase? Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. What kind of necessity is that? Who is making it necessary? Is Peter saying, well, circumstances do do have that effect? I mean, sometimes circumstances necessitate that you suffer. God doesn't want it, and it's not his necessity. Now, there's some reasons why I don't think that's what he means. For example, in chapter 3, verse 17, you can look at it with me if you want, because these next two verses I'm going to refer to are foundational in my understanding of the sovereignty of God in suffering and pain. Verse 17 of chapter 3 says, It is better if God should will it so. That's like saying if it's necessary. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Now, stop and think about that verse. If you do what is right, Peter says, you might suffer or you might not suffer. What makes the difference? If God should will it so, you will suffer for doing right. The necessity of chapter 1, verse 6 is God's will. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. Let those who suffer according to the will of God... And trust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. There he he makes bold to say it again. Let those who suffer, how? According to the will of God. If God wills, you will suffer for doing right. If God wills, David and faith will hit political turmoil in Guinea. And if he wills not, they will not. Therefore, I come back to verse 6. And my first reason for saying that there's a design in our suffering and in our distresses is this little phrase, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. But now that's not perhaps even the most persuasive reason for saying that there's a divine design here. The most persuasive reason is verse 7, which begins with the little connecting word that or so that. You have come into distress through various trials so that... Now, whose purpose is being talked about here? God's, because he's the only one that builds faith, not the devil and not the evil people that are bringing the suffering. 
Let's read it. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, so that the proof of that faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. That's God's purpose for your testing. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the if necessary, if you ask what is what would make such a thing necessary? Answer verse seven. God Almighty cares about refining your faith like gold so that when you reach the end, it is praised by God Almighty. There is a design in your distresses in this life. Now, that raises some really tough questions. And we're not playing word games here. We're not just... uh, talking about theory, but about where you are right now, right now in your life? Is it God's will that the marriage break up? Is it God's will that you have cancer? Is it God's will that you have a homosexual orientation? Is it God's will that your child rebel and be on drugs? Is it God's will that you lose your job? Is it God's will that there be threatening chaos in Russia and Congo and Somalia and Guinea? You don't pass. I don't pass over this lightly. I know how it's being heard with the struggles that you have when I talk about your distresses. And God's design in them. I know that there is a big gap between the theory often that comes through our ears and brains and the tremendous faith that is required to embrace what I'm saying and make it the ground of joy in a life of pain. And so let me give you my answer to those questions that I just asked. Is it God's will? And I believe it's a biblical answer on the basis of 1 Peter 3.17 and 4.19 and many others. The answer is no, it is not. And yes, it is. No, it is not that God delights in pain as an end in itself. It is not that God commands or endorses or approves sinning. But yes... Those are God's will in that he could easily prevent them and does not, but rather guides them for higher designs than the destructiveness of sin and the deceitfulness of Satan and the pain that you have to endure. Yes. Yes, it is God's will. When Christians suffer for doing right, There is sin happening, is there not? Can Christians suffer from others for doing right without sin happening? And yet, 1 Peter 3.17 says God wills it. When Jesus was crucified, did sin happen? It was the most sinful act that has ever happened in the world when nails were driven into the hand of the Son of God. And God willed it. God wills that sinful acts be 
without sinning. If you reject that, you reject the cross and God's design in it. I don't think you want to reject it. I think you want to struggle with me, with it. Try to learn how to live under that strange design. There is a divine design in your distresses, and so we must ask, what is it? Because to understand what it is will be the root and foundation for our joy in a life of pain. Briefly, I see five elements in the design in these verses. Number one, in God's design, in our distresses, it is made up of various trials. Underline the word various. Verse six If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. The NIV says all kinds of trials. The point simply here is to say to a group this large, (laughs) they come in every possible shape and form and intensity and and length and and perplexity. and, 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 And you will probably feel yours are absolutely unique and they probably are. There are so many kinds of distresses, so much variety in the perplexities and and trials of life that you would have never dreamed them up that it would happen to you this way. And I see in that word various, literally poikilios in in the Greek is many colored, (laughs) like just the, the whole spectrum of possible pain is portioned out to Christians. God paints in many colors, some dark and some bright. And the key is to entrust your life, as 419 says, to the faithful creator, the faithful artist. Number two, in God's design, my distresses are brief. Verse six again, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, this is relative. Time is relative, right? If I ask you, how, how long can you hold your breath? And you say, I can hold my breath for three minutes. I say, that's a long time. But if we say, how long has he been the pastor of the church? And you say, he's been there for six months. Ten thousand times longer than three minutes. We'd say, oh, he's only been there a short time. It's very relative whether you say three minutes is long or six months is short. When this text says that our suffering is brief, it's a reflection of what we saw last summer from 2 Corinthians 4 and what we saw in James chapter 4, where James says, what is your life? It is but a vapor that appears and then is gone. Life is short. That's the point here. You could suffer from the day you were born to the day you die. Some of you have. And over against eternity, it's like a vapor. It's like two seconds. You breathe out, you see your breath, poof, it's gone. When we get to eternity, that's why I prayed with David over there on Long Lake. I said, Lord, help David to feel when it seems long in Guinea that it is so short and then comes the day. And the day will last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we will look back and wonder 
how we could have ever been so unbelieving as to feel like 70, 80, 60, 90 years was a long time. This is an act of faith. I was standing at the window looking out, praying for the city about 5 o'clock this morning. And I can't remember now what it was, but something happened. You ever have this experience? And whammo, I was back 35 years. What was it? Shoot, I'll remember it by second service. But feelings came back to me that I hadn't felt for 35 years. Have those experiences? Smell sometimes do it? Sights? And, you know, that seemed a long, long, long time ago. (laughs) It seemed really long that I had experienced that event when I was seven. Whoa, what was that? Thirty-five, twelve, twelve years old. (laughs) Therefore, it's an act of faith to embrace this truth. Number three. In God's design, our trials are grievous. Verse 6 again, you have been distressed, distressed by various trials. That word translated distressed is grieved, sorrowed. Now mark this well. Don't mistake this. Get this now. It is not a contradiction. It is not double talk. It is not schizophrenia for him to say in this you rejoice being sorrowed. In this, you rejoice being distressed. That's a subjective word, not just an objective experience. He's not saying you rejoice even though there's persecution. He's saying you rejoice even though inside of you there's distress. Inside of you there's sorrow. Every true Christian, after a few years of real experience, knows what he's talking about. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he said, Though sorrowing... We always rejoice. So sorrow and joy go hand in hand in the Christian life. It is a life of painful joy. There is a place, a necessary place for real, authentic grieving and sorrowing amid our trials. But because we're Christians, a fundamental alteration has come into that grieving. We grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And that doesn't just apply to the loss of a loved one. It applies to every trial you face when the grief and the distress and the sorrow and the pain and the frustration and the disappointment mounts and churns inside. A fundamental alteration has cut through that thing and the roots are still planted by the stream of sovereignty And the leaves remain green and the fruit continues to grow and the branches may be thrashing in the wind, but the trunk does not fall over because the stream is flowing and it is profoundly deep. It is the stream of sovereign grace that has a design in it all. And you believe it and that belief is your root. Number four, in God's design, our distresses are like the fire that refines gold from its impurities. Number seven, verse seven, that the proof or genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you melt down gold, 
the impurities in it rise to the surface and you can skim them off. And when you let it harden again after the fire, it is more valuable. That's the analogy Peter uses for your faith. God loves your faith. He's going to praise your faith someday and give it honor and a crown of glory. But he loves it so much he wants to purify it and therefore he puts it in the fire and as it melts, the impurities, what are those? Inclinations to murmur, grumble at circumstances. That's impurity in my faith. I speak from real painful experience. Inclinations to pessimism, doubt. Or the other side would be temptations and tendencies to trust more in money and trust more in position and popularity than in God. So how does God get that out of you? How does God get those impurities out of your faith? He loves your faith. When he puts you in the fire, it's not because he doesn't love you. He loves your faith. Here's the way it happens. This is a firsthand experience from the Apostle Paul. Then I'll give you one from last night. Second Corinthians 1 8. Listen to Paul. We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. It's the fire now. Which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond strength so that we despaired. There's the subjective dimension of it. We despaired even of life. There's the fire. Now, here comes the design. Indeed, this is verse nine. We had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. God willed for Paul to be so pressed, so burdened, so on the brink of death that the only thing he could hope in was resurrection from the dead. And then God let him up and his faith was purer. Because all the props had been knocked out from under him. Your health gets knocked out. Your family may get knocked out. Your job may get knocked out. Your esteem in the community may get knocked out. And you wonder, where am I going to lean now? And God says, my design is that you lean on me and that you learn to trust me fully, totally, 100 percent and be free from all those other reliances for your joy. Last night, as we were praying at the airport, huddle of a couple of a dozen of us around Faith and David. I've heard her do this before. She did it on Saturday. I mean, on Friday. Uh, Faith prayed and uh, she set a great example for us. She said, I praise you, Lord, for broken ribs. I praise you, Lord, for bronchitis. I praise you for weakness. I praise you for exhaustion. I praise you that as we get on this plane, we have nothing but you. Something to that effect. You can ask the dozen or so people if I got the words about right. You do that. You praise God for your pain. Finally, number five. In God's design, the result of this refining is that our faith would receive praise and honor and glory. Verse seven, that the proof or the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Two things are going to happen when Jesus comes back at the revelation of Jesus. We're going to believe in him. 
and our faith is going to be large and full. He will be the trusted one, the hoped for one, the rejoiced in one, so that as our faith is large, his glory, his worth, his beauty, his trustworthiness will be reflected back in our joy and our faith and our hope. And so you see the two things that are happening? The one is his glory is being magnified in our relying upon him and rejoicing in him and hoping in him. He gets the glory for all of that. But in his getting the glory for what we are doing by faith, he looks down and he says, I love that. I love that. I praise that. I honor that. Chapter five, verse four, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We've got songs that say we're going to crown Jesus, King of Kings. He's going to crown you. He's going to crown you. It's not an awesome thought. God is going to pick up the crown and put it on your head. That's staggering. In this, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray. Oh, God, what a hope. Oh, God, what a hope. Grant that we would not resent the design to purify our faith. Grant that the lifelong struggle with our difficulties would not make us bitter, would not make us sour, but let us be like Faith Jaeger last night, who lifted her voice and gave testimony to her tremendous trust in your design for her broken ribs and your design for her pleurisy and your design for her exhaustion, and your design for her getting on a plane, going to a country that might explode this fall. Lord, make us like that. And then the world will see and know and say, Where are you? what are you hoping in? Oh, Lord God, transfer our affections to you, I pray. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, Amen.